Okay, so let's jump right into our message today because we're continuing looking together at the life of David. And where we've gotten to the story so far, last week my dad brought the message and at the end of the message we heard this incredible uh, change that's taken place. Saul and Jonathan are now dead. They've died in battle and David, after a decade of living in the wilderness on the run as a fugitive from King Saul, now comes out of hiding to be crowned king, but not king of the nation. He's crowned king, but only of the tribe of Judah. And this sparks a terrible, brutal civil war, a civil war that lasts for seven years and six months. I want you to think about that. That's twice as long as the American Civil War. And think about the impact that that had on our nation and our culture. And here for almost eight years, they are divided in civil war. And now, finally, as that comes to an end after maybe as many as 25 years after David was anointed by the prophet Samuel that he told him he'd be the next king of Israel. Finally, in 2 Samuel 5, 1 through 6, it reads, then all the tribes of Israel went to David at Hebron and told him, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, when Saul was our king, you were the one who really led the forces of Israel and the Lord told you, you will be the shepherd of my people Israel. You will be Israel's leader. So there at Hebron, King David made a covenant before the Lord with all the elders of Israel, and they anointed him king of Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years in all. He had reigned over Judah from Hebron for seven years and six months, and from Jerusalem he reigned over all of Israel and Judah for 33 years. So David is now made king, but David's kingdom is extremely fragile at this point. It's just had this long civil war, and David has to rebuild the kingdom and secure the kingdom, and the capital of Saul's kingdom and Saul's reign is Gibeah, Saul's hometown. That's not going to work very well, is it? After a seven-year civil war to go and make your capital the hometown of the prior king. So, after all of this, one of the first things David does is he decides it's time to march on a Jebusite stronghold city named Jebus. Now, Jebus, we know better as Jerusalem. It's the city that ends up being known as the city of David. But at this point, it was a military stronghold up on top of these two hills, and it had played a central role in the story of Israel's patriarchs up until this point. So now David and his army are going to march on Jerusalem. And it says, David then led his men to Jerusalem to fight against the Jebusites, the original inhabitants of the land who were living there. The Jebusites taunted David, saying, you'll never get in here. Even the blind and lame could keep you out. For the Jebusites thought they were safe. They thought they were safe because their city and its fortifications had worked for many, many, many generations prior. Because even to this day, it's an incredibly uh, hardened, difficult place to lay siege to. But despite these fortifications and despite their confidence and despite their taunting, David is victorious in battle. And here's why. We'll find out. 2 Samuel 5, 9 through 10. So David made the fortress his home, and he called it the city of David. He extended the city, starting at the supporting terraces and working inward, and David became more and more powerful. Here's why. Because the Lord God of heaven's armies was with him. 
okay? So they thought their fortifications were enough, but they didn't count on the fact that David had the Lord of Heaven's armies with him. And it was good that they took over this stronghold because as soon as their Philistine neighbors hear that David has been crowned king, and as soon as they hear that the kingdom is no longer at war but is united, they decide it's time to attack because we don't want to have a united Israel as our neighbors again. And so they attack, but once again, because David has the Lord with him and is leading the, uh, the, the armies of Israel, they are uh, able to destroy the armies of the Philistines. So now, David has to make a decision. What kind of kingdom will he rule over? What kind of capital will he rule over? Will it be a military stronghold or will it be something else? What will the nation look like under David's uh, kingship? So David is going to do something next, and this is what we're going to look at today. David is going to attempt to bring the Ark of the Covenant into his new capital city. And some of you probably know the Ark of the Covenant best because you've watched Indiana Jones a whole bunch of times, right? So if you're not sure about the Ark, let me just give you the quick overview. The Ark of the Covenant was, the, uh, was more than just a religious symbol that the Israelites had. It, it was not a, a statue. It wasn't just a box. The Ark of the Covenant was... Uh, the, the plans were given to Moses and the people of God, and in the Ark of the Covenant, it held three things. It held the stone tablets that God, his, his own hand, had written on containing the Ten Commandments. It held a jar full of manna that reminded them of their time in the desert and his provision for them. And it also contained a staff of Aaron's that had budded that showed that God had chosen Aaron and his uh, family to be the priests. So in this Ark of the Covenant, the most important part of it was the top of it. The top of it was something known as the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was where the priest on one day a year on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy Holies before the Ark of the Covenant, and he would sprinkle on the mercy seat the blood, the blood of the Lamb that had been shed. And that mercy seat is the place where it says when the priests would come in, that the, the presence of God would actually hover over the Ark. That there, that there was a pillar of fire and there was smoke, and the ark represented God's presence among his people. Remember, God's original dream in the garden was that he would dwell amongst his people, but because of the sinfulness of mankind, God was not able to dwell with us, and so he dwelled in this inner part of the tabernacle on this place called the Ark of the Covenant. So, the Israelites believed that this ark was really the symbol of God's presence with them, the symbol of God dwelling with his people. But you may not realize that the ark has not been in the tabernacle for a long time, 40 to 70 years, somewhere in that time frame, the ark has not been in the tabernacle because the Philistines captured the ark of the covenant. When Samuel was still a young boy and the judge of Israel was still Eli, Okay? Eli, when he was high priest and judge, the Israelite army had lost the major battle to the Philistines, and they decided, you know what we need? Let's go get the ark, our good luck charm. We'll bring it down here to battle tomorrow, and surely we'll win if the ark is with us. And it got even worse for them, because they went back and got the ark, 
And Eli's own sons brought the ark out, and they go into battle the next day. And not only are they defeated, but the ark is taken into captivity. They lost the symbol of God's presence amongst his people. This is so tragic to them. You have to understand, when word gets back to Eli, the ark's been lost and your sons are dead, it says he falls out of his chair and breaks his neck and dies. He had been judge over Israel 40 years, and the loss of the ark was enough. Instantly, he falls over and is dead. Now, we find out the Philistines, they take this ark, and they carry it to one of their temples, the god Dagon. And they set the ark up in their temple next to their idol. And the next morning, when they go into the temple, their god Dagon has fallen on his face before the ark. They think, well, that's a strange coincidence, so they set him back up. And the next day they come in, and he's fallen on his face again. And this time his hands have been chopped off. And they think, well, this isn't good. So they send it to another Philistine city. Hey, we got a gift for you. They send the ark to another Philistine city. And guess what happens? The same thing. They're overrun with mice. And depending on which translation of the Bible you have, either they got, got tumors or they all got hemorrhoids. Okay? So... It's bad deal, right? Hemorrhoids have broken out. Tumors are broken out. Mice have infested the cities. Their gods are falling over, and they're just like, hey, we need this thing out of here. And they send it three times to other cities. And each time, the exact same thing happens. And so they gather together their leaders and their priests, and they say, what are we going to do? We got to get rid of this thing. We got to get it out of here. So they come up with the plan. Here's what we're going to do. To find out if this is really God or a coincidence, we are going to get a couple of cows who have just given birth to calves, okay? And we're going to hook them up to this new cart. We're going to put the Ark of the Covenant in the cart, and then we're going to take their new calves, and we're going to put them in a pen. And we're going to let them hear their calves bawling, and then we're going to just let the cows go and see where they'll go. If they come back to their calves, we know it's just a coincidence, But if they walk away and take the ark back where it belongs, then we'll know this is God. And as soon as they hook up this cart to those cows, those cows take straight off in a beeline headed for the tabernacle of the Lord. And when they cross over the border, these cows come lumbering across the border of Israel, and an Israelite named Shamish sees the ark and says, let's take this thing to my house. And so they take it to his house and... Some people get curious about what might be inside this thing. You think the stuff is still in there? And so they decide to open it up and check it out, just like the Germans did in Raiders of the Lost Ark, okay? They open it up, and everyone is killed. And just like the Germans in Raiders of the Lost Ark. The bottom line is, Jameis says, this thing cannot stay in my house. It's dangerous. I don't want it here. So he sends for the Israelite priests, and they come and get it, and they take it to the house of a man named Abinadab. Now, Abinadab puts it in a guest room. This is just so bizarre to me. He puts it in a guest room of his house, and it sits there undisturbed. 1 Samuel 7.1 says, They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. There the ark remained throughout the judgeship of Samuel and the reign of King Saul. See, under Saul, worship of the Lord, worship of Yahweh really languished. 
See, Saul had disobeyed the Lord multiple different times. Samuel had spoken direct commands to him from God, and he had disobeyed. In fact, it went so far that in his paranoia and in his madness, Saul had all of the priests that served at the tabernacle slaughtered. He blamed them for David's escape. Remember the story where the priests give David the bread that we talked about and gave David Goliath's sword? Well, when Saul shows up and hears that they've done that, he has all 80 of the priests living in that town put to death, except one of them escapes. One of them, uh, Abathier, he escapes and goes over to David. And when he goes, he takes the ephod along with him. But at this point, worship is so diminished that without Saul's not able to talk, he doesn't have the Holy Spirit in him any longer. He's not able to talk with Samuel. Samuel, it says, from the point he anointed David, had nothing to do with Saul, that Saul ends up having to seek guidance from a witch at Endor because he doesn't have anyone to turn to. Now that David is king, he wants to reestablish and establish the people of Israel as worshipers of Yahweh. And in order to do this, he wants to bring this long-neglected ark that's just been sitting in Abinadab's house, he wants to bring it back into his new capital city. He wants God once again to dwell amongst his people. A very fractured people, fractured by war, fractured by division. He wants them now to be united in the worship of God. So David brings together the whole nation. I want you to picture this. He brings together the whole assembly of Israel as well as his army. And he seeks to get their buy-in to this great plan of his. And the chronicler records it like this in 1 Chronicles 13. Then he addressed the entire assembly of Israel as follows. If you approve And if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send messages to all the Israelites through the land, including the priests and the Levites and their towns and pasture land. Let us invite them to come up and join us. It is time to bring back the ark of our God, for we neglected it during the reign of Saul. And the assembly thinks this is a great idea. Let's do it. Let's go. Let's bring back the ark. And this becomes a national event. Everybody is on hand for this. First Chronicles 13, 5 and 6. So David summoned all Israel from the Shehor brook of Egypt in the south all the way to the town of Lebo Hamath in the north to join in bringing the ark of God from Kirath Jerim. Then David and all of Israel went to Bala of Judah, also called Kirath Jerim, to bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord, who is enthroned between the cherubim. Now, It seemed like a great idea to everyone. Let's go get the ark. But apparently, David and the people of Israel forgot one thing. They forgot to ask God about it. They forgot to read the Torah, to search the scriptures. They forgot to discover how they should actually go about getting the ark and bringing it to Jerusalem. Rather, you'll see they use the same method to retrieve the ark that the Philistines used to retrieve the ark. They used the same methods that the people around them used instead of seeking God and finding out what God would have them do. So, they have a new cart built. They get some cows. And they're going to have this ark put on the cart and pulled by the cows into the city of Jerusalem. And it starts out great. 2 Samuel 6, 3 through 5. (coughs) They placed the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house 
which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's son, were guiding the cart that carried the ark of God. Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, cassinets, and cymbals, and then things go terribly wrong. Verse 6, but when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled. And Uzzah reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. And now look at David's reaction. Verse 8, David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah. He named the place Perez Uzzah, which means to burst out against Uzzah, as it is still called to this day. David was now afraid of the Lord, and he asked, how can I ever bring the ark of the Lord back into my care? Now, friends, why is David so mad? You have to understand what just happened. David has been publicly humiliated. A national celebration with all of Israel gathered, the armies gathered, has just ended in disaster. And it sure looks as if God doesn't approve of David moving the ark into Jerusalem. Remember, what does the ark represent? This is the presence of God coming into their new capital city. So in the people's eyes, David's relationship with God is really being questioned here. And I want to say this to you gently but clearly today. We are not the first generation in history to be offended by what the Bible has to say. I say that because sometimes we live in this age where we begin to think because of how enlightened we've become, we're the first ones to be bothered by any of this. But the Bible has been offending people for centuries, even its own writers like David. Listen, if the requirements for belief are that the Bible never offends you or disagrees with you, then we all have a problem. As Tim Keller puts it, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. You see, David is frustrated. He's angry. He sends everyone home. He decides to abandon his plan. He has the ark sent to someone's house, to Obed-Edom, the Gittite's house, because we're going to hear later, Obed-Edom is a prominent Levite with seven sons. Okay? So 2 Samuel 6, 11 through 12, says there, the ark of the Lord remained there in Obed-Edom's house for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his entire household. Then King David was told, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything he has, and everything he has because of the ark of God. When David learns this, wait a minute, Obed-Edom is being blessed by this thing? I thought it was dangerous. He realizes, wait a minute, <clears throat> the ark isn't what was the problem. The ark isn't the problem. David realizes he is the problem. His approach is the problem. So he decides we've got to go get the ark. But this time, let's not be hasty. Let's do the groundwork. Let's consult Scripture. And let's find out from Moses how are we supposed to have transported the ark. And they discover, and actually he tells his priest in 1 Chronicles 15.2, David commanded, no one except the Levites may carry the ark of God. The Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to serve him forever. 
See, God had actually made it clear, but they had forgotten. Because you have to understand, once Joshua and the people carried the ark across the river and around the, uh, Jericho, once they had conquered the land, they set up their tabernacle at Shiloh, and there the ark stayed for 350 years without being moved. And now they took it out and it was captured, right? Now it's been hanging out in these guys' like guest bedroom, and they've just forgotten how they were supposed to transport the ark. But just because they've forgotten doesn't mean that God hadn't made his instructions to them clear. In fact, you'll find in the book of Numbers three different times and the book of Deuteronomy two different times very specific instructions about the transporting of the ark. We find out actually that there's just one clan of Levites that are, that are charged with moving the furniture from the tabernacle. It's this Kohathite clan. And guess what we find out? This little cool detail that I just love about the Bible. Obed-Edom is living in a Levite town called Gath-Ramon, which is the home of the Kohathite clan of Levites. Coincidence. <clears throat> so now, after they read the Bible, after they consult the Torah and Scripture, and they discover what they were supposed to do, David tells the Levites, 1 Chronicles 15, 13, because you Levites did not carry the ark the first time, the anger of the Lord our God burst out against us. We failed to ask God how to move it properly. We failed to ask God. We failed to search the scripture. We did what everyone else was doing. We saw the Philistines make a cart, so we made a cart, but we didn't pay attention to what God said. Then they try again for a second time. 2 Samuel 6, 12. So David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with a great celebration. After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. This time, David makes sure to do God's will in God's way. You see, David knows what he did wrong the first time. And so this time, he changes. And I just want you to see, this is your first fill in the blank. It's a life lesson that I think is so important for us. God's work must be done in God's way if it is to have God's blessing. God's work must be done in God's way if it is to have God's blessing. The fact that all of the Israelite leadership agreed that this was a good idea to transport the Ark of the Covenant on a cart didn't make it right. In fact, Solomon, David's son, who the Bible says is the wisest guy who ever lived, says it like this, Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him or acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. See, this is what David and the leaders of Israel had done wrong. They had not consulted with God. They had not consulted with Scripture that spoke with clarity on this issue, and they did what seemed to be right in their own eyes. But as, again, Solomon reminds us in Proverbs 14, 12, he says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. And we just literally saw this work its way out. We have to pay attention to this, friends. The Bible teaches plainly that we are to learn and obey 
the word of God. If we want to walk in the will of God, then we need to obey the word of God. And if we will obey God's word, God will do what we can't do. And it's that simple. Here's how Jesus said it, John 14, 15. If you love me, obey my commands. The Apostle John, who wrote the gospel that we just referenced, apparently understood because he wrote it like this. We know we love God. We know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. Loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. John 15, 9 through 11, I have loved you even as my Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commands, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. So Jesus actually teaches us that when we obey, when we follow his commandments, that it actually should produce in us an overflowing joy. And I want you to see in this story, that's exactly what happens to David and the people of Israel. When they do God's will, God's way, when they're obedient to his commands, the way God's designed his commands to work are not to be burdensome. He's designed his commands to be life-giving to us, to give us us joy that our joy may be made complete. So now King David is actually leading a traveling worship service, a traveling worship procession. Imagine this, picture it in your mind's eye. Every six steps they stop and they sacrifice and they're praising God. And let's look at what it sounds and looks like. 2 Samuel 6, 14 and 15. This is of King David wearing a linen ephod. David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might, while he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. David himself is personally absorbed in this joy-filled expression of worship. And it's not some formal exercise. This is really from David's heart. He's worshiping with his arms and legs and feet and voice. He's dancing. And he doesn't seem to care that those who are watching him think that this kind of praise and worship is beneath his position. In fact, we find out, sadly, that his own wife, his own wife is watching all of this as they draw near to the city. And it says in 2 Samuel 6, 16, As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. See, Michal, David's wife, was the daughter of King Saul, and she had lived her whole life living surrounded in a palace by the royal court. She knew how dignified people were supposed to act, how important people were supposed to carry themselves, and when she looked at David, she despised him because he wasn't acting like a king. He was acting in a way that was below him. She, in fact, accused him of acting like servants act or slaves act. David responds to his wife, 2 Samuel 6, 22. <clears throat> I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. See, one of the lessons that we learn from the life of David, and you are going to see this throughout the book of Psalms, 
is the importance of praise. See, the Psalms were not designed for us to be read silently. They were designed to be sung out or at the very least read out loud. The Psalms are designed to help us experience praise, to enter into praise ourselves. And David didn't wait for someone else to set the example. David set the example for the people of Israel by being right out in front, first and foremost, that he was a worshiper of God. And this, friends, you might not realize reading this week in commentaries, how major of change David was making to the worship and practice of worship to the nation of Israel. It's really the first time that you see these, all these instruments involved in praise and the way David sets things up is radically different than before. In fact, up until this point, remember the presence of God, the ark has been at the tabernacle where sacrifice took place and the primary way they'd worship there was through sacrifice but now the ark was going to be set up in Jerusalem at a tent, not at the tabernacle. That's going to continue its sacrificial services somewhere else. But the ark is going to set in a tent that is set up just for the purpose of praise and worship. In fact, David is going to give the Levites some new jobs that they've never had before so that you can get a flavor of what worship in David's kingdom would have looked like. 2 Samuel 6, 17-19. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offering and fellowship offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, a cake of raisins to each person and the whole crowd of the Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went back to their homes. Now, let's look at 1 Chronicles 16, 4 through 6 to look what does the worship look like. It says, He appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord, to extol, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and next to him in rank were Zechariah and Jaziel, Shem, I'm going to call him, Jehiel and Matt, I'm going to call him, Eliab, Benaniah, Obed-Edom, and Jael. They were to play the lyre. The harp, Asaph, was to sound the cymbals. Beniah and Jehazel, the priests, were to blow the trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. Asaph, if you look in your book of Psalms, you're going to find a whole bunch of Psalms written by Asaph. These are the worship leaders. These are the people of Israel, the Levites, that were given the responsibility to, to be before the Ark, praising and worshiping God. And I want to tell you something this morning about praise and worship, and it's another life point for you. You can write this one in. All of worship should have an element of passion and of self-forgetfulness. I'm going to explain that. Remember, undignified, the word David used in 2 Samuel 6.22, implies a self-forgetfulness. What David is saying is when I worship, I am not going to think about what other people think of me. I'm going to get my focus off of me, and I'm going to place it on only what God is worthy of, on only what God deserves. Now listen, everyone, I know we all have different personalities, and I know we all worship God differently, and I think that's wonderful, but all of our worship should contain elements of passion 
and self-forgetfulness. And we can actually see this displayed throughout the book of Psalms. If you want to just look at how many times the Psalms command us to do things like raise our hands, I think you'd be surprised. 20 different times in the book of Psalms are we encouraged, are we commanded to raise our hands in worships, like Psalm 28.2. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift my hands. Psalm 134.2, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. And it's not just an Old Testament idea. It's 1 Timothy 2.8, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands. And lifting hands isn't just one symbol of worship. In fact, in the same way, we're told we should clap. We're told we should sing. We're told we should shout. Let's read some of them. Psalm 32, 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Psalm 35, 27, let those who delight in my salvation shout for joy. Psalm 47, 1, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with a voice of triumph. Psalm 81, 1, sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Isaiah 12, 6, shout and sing for joy, O Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Zephaniah 3, 14, Sing aloud, O Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O Jerusalem. <clears throat> now you say, <clears throat> but Kurt, I don't feel like it. Friends, when does how we feel become a condition on whether or not we obey God? We don't say, you know what, I just don't feel like praying, so I won't. I just don't feel like reading my Bible, so I won't. We recognize these things are important. They're disciplines for a reason. And here's the last life point for you today. The central question in worship is not what we feel like, but what is he worthy of? What is he worthy of? The point isn't, what do I feel like right now? The point is, what is he worthy of? Because we worship because he's worthy, not because of how I feel. Ben, you can come back up. See, I want my unbelieving friends to see the way I worship and think, this must be a God that's worth knowing. I want my believing friends to see the way I worship, knowing my life, knowing my situation, knowing my circumstances, and think, boy, this is a God that's really worth trusting. I know I say these things to you a lot, and I, it's just so important to me that you understand. I have seen many of you celebrate the Seahawks or the Beavers or the Ducks with such enthusiasm. Such excitement. And yet when it comes to our worship of the Lord, we believed this lie that we need to be proper or restrained or dignified. I want you to be real. Don't get me wrong. I don't want you to fake something. But I just believe that inside of you, there's a passion for the Lord that if you would allow to really experience what God wants for you in worship, it would be incredibly freeing for you. 
Because here's what I know about God. We quoted it earlier. When we draw near to him, he draws near to us. And friends, I want you to experience that. I want you to experience God's presence. I want you to do more than just show up to a meeting. I want you to do more than come to church. I want you to encounter God. And the opportunity we have, friends, is as we praise and as we worship together, we have the opportunity, like David, to say, you know what? I'm not worshiping for everybody else that's watching me. I'm worshiping for an audience of one today. I'm here to pour myself out because of his goodness. What is he worthy of? I'm just going to ask you today. What is he worthy of? I just want to encourage as we begin to worship today that you would keep that in your mind, that you keep that in your heart. It doesn't mean that all the songs need to be fast. It doesn't mean that we need to run around and jump around. It means that in your heart and in your mind, you need to be real. You need to be passionate. You need to really give yourself to worshiping our Lord and Savior.